Talk Land, a weekly land education talk show devoted to learning about land and farms, buying and selling, and ownership, especially for real estate agents and realtors. Hey guys, learn from the experts. This is free land education. Hi, my name's Lou Jewell. I'm an accredited land consultant with my co-host this morning, Teresa Martin. Good morning, Teresa. Good morning. We serve Western Piedmont, North Carolina, and Virginia. Give us a shout and we'll help you out. All of our shows are dedicated to the Realtors Land Institute staff and members, and our national site is www.rliland.com. Hey, we'd like to thank our sponsors, LandHub.com, buying or selling land. LandHub.com is the place to be. And also, AcreValue, want to know what the neighbors sold their land for, go to AcreValue.com, and it's free. Hey, we got a guest host, Sonia Howell for Geo Ranch. Sons is a member of the Realtors Land Institute, and the company won the Land Tech Accelerated Award last year from RLI. Geo Ranch is dedicated to bringing, helping landowners and land transitions, encouraging leasing as well as buying for new and beginning farmers and ranchers. Sonia, welcome. And you're going to introduce your host, your guest today, Sonia. We'll turn it over to you. Yes, our guest today is Kelly Payne. She's the former president of Oklahoma National Stockyards. She's a rancher and a agritourism owner from Mustang, Oklahoma. And I had the pleasure of meeting Kelly at the Farmer Veteran Coalition Stakeholders Conference a couple of months ago in Oklahoma City. She gave us a tour of the Oklahoma National Stockyards and shared her own story and background of ranching in Oklahoma. As realtors and land, livestock is often a key component of our clients' plans for their land. It's important we understand it from every level. That's why what Kelly has to say is so very important. Welcome, Kelly. Thank you, Sonia. I'm just honored to be a part of this podcast. I appreciate the opportunity. I'm glad to have you. So let's, first of all, um, what I'd like to do is talk a little bit about your background, about the Oklahoma National Stockyards, and about not only your background, but your the background of your family in Oklahoma and their land. And then since you are reporting from the NCBA, I'd love to have any insight or, or information uh, that you can report to us from, from there. So let's start with your personal background, please. Super. Thank you again, Sonia. And uh, once again, it's very, uh, very much an honor to be able to visit with you all about about my past and my my story and and land that's obviously the most important thing uh, personally fifth generation uh, cattle producer uh, farmer rancher uh, in Oklahoma uh, my ancestors made the track during the land run and I didn't think you, know, you don't think about things as being a very big deal and you know whenever you're when you grow up in it but I catch myself uh, when I introduce myself to people and say, oh, you know, fifth generation, and they say, you'll have hands shoot up in the audience. I'm a fifth generation. I'm a fifth generation. And so uh, it's just really important and really a cool uh, part of our of our family's fabric. Uh, we are actually just a couple miles from where they originally settled during the first land run, and uh, my whole family lives on the place together, not together in the same house. We don't like each other that well. But um, kind of there on on the compound, if you will. Um, proud to grow up with agriculture in my background. Uh, my whole family's involved in ag. Um, I have worked off the farm, obviously. Um, can't always make it just on the land alone, uh, but we're working to change some of that. So I was very honored uh, to have been asked uh, in my past to serve as president of Oklahoma National Stockyards. They're actually entering their 113th year in business. Uh, as far as the stockyards go, um, if you think about the old terminal markets in Kansas City, St. Louis, uh, Fort Worth, Chicago, those, those were originally set up as fat cattle destinations where those cattle were also processed in the processing plants there. Um, the only one left that is currently in operation is the uh, stockyards there in Oklahoma City as far as those original terminal markets. There are stockyards still around, but the original historic market. Uh, that has commission companies that sell cattle versus just a single owner barn. So that's a very unique, um, that was a very unique opportunity for me. It is in the middle of Oklahoma City, uh, downtown, where a lot of those, where all of them were located. 
so that was an interesting challenge um, because of the land location. Um, they're typically on a river, um, so that was <clears throat> that was a cool um, a cool opportunity. Uh, one I did not take lightly uh, to to run a historic market, and I was the sixth president in the in this 113th. 113 years. So, yeah. And Kelly, Sid, while we're talking about that, I, I found the tour of the stockyards just fascinating and the fact that it's the world's largest stocker and feeder cattle market. I'd love for you just to share how it operates and, and, and you know, who it serves. You had some really fascinating stories about, about the buyers and about new buyers and and just about the different companies that are within the the uh, stockyard. Sure thing, Sonia. And it, I, I could talk about it all day. So um, I, I actually grew up uh, going there. I'm 46 and started going with my dad when I was five years old. So um, being able to watch it for, you know, 40 years of my life, uh, very much hands-on, uh, it was also very much a part of my fabric. So... Um, Lots and lots of stories about it, but uh, that barn as well, we can actually just close out for 2022, uh, 400 and, a little over 460,000 head of cattle were sold through that location, and it's very large. They uh, have sales on Monday and Tuesday. Back in the 70s, it was not uncommon for there to be a million head a week, excuse me, a million head a year go through there. Uh, they had sales four days a week. Um, you could still, cattle were still, it was still a delivery point for contracted cattle, whereas you don't have to have that happen today. Uh, a lot of the trading is done with paper, but um, an incredible place to do business. Cattle come from, a, a lot of cattle come from the southeastern United States, obviously Oklahoma and Texas, um, Arkansas, Louisiana, but you can get further down, uh, Florida cattle, Alabama, Tennessee, we had a shipper um, that it, comes to mind a customer from Georgia that would actually bring cattle over in a gooseneck trailer that you would pull behind a pickup. So a lot of reach um, for 2022. Uh, one of the things that that's special about that barn as well, when cattle or uh, livestock are transported cross country, a lot of times um, the, the trucks will lay out, call it layover, and they'll pull into a location, unload the stock, uh, even horses, and uh, let those uh, let those animals rest, and obviously the driver needs to rest too. So, serving as a layover spot um, and a regular sale barn auction facility, um, and then we also had cattle come into Oklahoma for Cattlemen's Congress, uh, the show that um, started to replace Denver during the pandemic, uh, the National Western Show. And then cattle that are purchased there, we have touched in 2022 uh, 46 states and Canada with stock from those countries. You look at it from a different perspective, though, too. Um, every year, people become further and further removed from agriculture. So one of the things that in my tenure there was really important was to tell the story. Um, it is very much a part of agriculture. It is a huge economic Order by you know, the cattle buyers, the the shippers. Oops. So uh, that became um, a big story that we wanted to tell the public. During the pandemic, of course, a lot of folks weren't traveling, so we reached out with social media and utilized um, utilized our Facebook um, account there to start showing the sale a little more often, you know, uh, live and answering questions, and then. Um, as the world kind of started opening back up, we opened up a tour portal for people to uh, sign up. Yes, go online and sign up and be able to have a, just a one-on-one -on -one tour or with tour groups so that we could tell the story of the yards. And I would venture to guess that just in tourism alone, um, probably close to 300,000 people a year go through there to see it. That would not be directly involved in agriculture. And. That's definitely a new, yeah, an audience that would not be familiar with anything like that unless you had toured. It, so, right. It's something <laughs> to me. <Yeah. laughs> well, yeah, and you might talk about the, the buyers and how they and who they are buying for you know, and 
and just a, about that, I guess, a, a, that system, you know, within okay. the stockyards. Sure. So uh, the buyers, uh, a lot of the buyers are not from Oklahoma. Uh, they're coming in from uh, or they're southern and western Oklahoma. Some of them live in Texas. But they are buying uh, either stock or calves, uh, S-T-O-C-K-E-R. I, I found um, – oh, <laughs> I know. <laughs> well, I, I mean, and I'm laughing about it a little bit to myself because I, I you get caught up in your own jargon, you know, and um, I had a lady one day say, oh, my goodness, they stalk you. And I thought, oh, I need to put that <laughs> But uh, the stalker gives that go back to grass and then mm-hmm. the feeder cattle. So it's not uncommon for a buyer in the barn to have multiple orders, uh, maybe even for his neighbor. Oh, I need, I need about 20 head to go back to grass. Or he's buying for a feedlot that may need three to five uh, truckloads a week from that barn. Those buyers are also going to work other barns um, to try, you know, to continue to fill those orders. So uh, it's a very interesting dynamic. Um, I find down here you mentioned the NCBA, the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. Their um, annual conference is going on convention. Uh, and um, so running into some folks that have received cattle from Oklahoma National Stockyards, even as far away as California, um, is, is really interesting. Those cattle can go a lot of different places. Um, it's a very interesting time in the southern region right now in Texas and Oklahoma. Um, and then, of course, you can get up further north. A lot of times we don't have cattle from the north come through Oklahoma National Stockyards for sale. Um, but cattle from here can go, will go north, um, but with this drought that we've been facing, um, very severe drought, um, it's, it'll be interesting to see how we're able to repopulate uh, once we get some, once we get moisture back and get some grass growing, where we're able to get those cattle from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I figured while you were at NCBA, it's in New Orleans, right? Yes. I figured you'd probably run into a lot of people you know because of your years in the industry there at the stockyards. So that's, yes. that's great. And it's while, like a family reunion. It's wonderful. <laughs> well, and while we're on that, you might, um, you know, we were talk- you were talking about the drought, and obviously, you know, as land professionals, we know that that's affecting a lot of parts of the country. But you might also let us know, kind of from a national perspective, what on – what are the hot topics at NCBA right now? Gosh, there is quite a few um, few things that are on the radar screen. Uh, marketing is a big thing uh, with cattle, and that was one of the meetings uh, that that I've attended. Uh, there, so marketing, uh, changing it, making sure that there's fairness in the market. That's always very important for folks in uh, in the livestock industry. Um, protecting our resources. Uh, sustainability, um, how to uh, how to weather a drought, how to prepare for a drought. So those are some things that uh, that are certainly being discussed. And and it's always nice to sit down. We we, do, we all we all know the same misery loves company, but we mm-hmm. certainly don't want to sit here and and gosh, well you know hasn't this been horrible? Hasn't this been horrible? If we all want to look for solutions because we want yes. to continue to stay in business. So we're here to learn. Uh, from each other uh, and and share ideas and collaborate and look at ways to make things better. Obviously, adding more value to our operations is important. Um, all overall care of livestock and what are trends uh, in the industry, what are buyers going to look for more, what do consumers demand? So there's a lot of topics uh, that get covered at conferences like this, and, and you always walk away with new ideas and inspiration and hopefully ready to take the charge in, you know, into yet another year and, and plan even further down the road. There's actually um, some long-range planning um, things that are being discussed uh, as far as breakout sessions. So a lot of great things going on. Yeah, I'll bet. Well, um, Rob, this is next- a good time to break, guys. Uh, our guest today is Kelly Payne, and we'd like to thank our sponsors, LandHub.com, Buying and Selling Land. LandHub is the place to be, and Anchor Value. Want to know where your neighbors sold their land for? Go to AcreValue.com. It's also free. So that's uh, LandHub.com and Acre Value. Those are 
our two sponsors, and we appreciate all they do for us. Okay, so All right, we're yeah. back. Oh, I'm sorry. You're good. Lou, were you going to do the intro back in? No, you got it. We know who you are now. Oh, okay. We're just going to enjoy your show. Okay. So, hey there, everyone. We're back with Kelly Payne from Oklahoma, who's at the NCBA. And as I mentioned earlier, she is from Mustang, Oklahoma, and her, her family has is She's a fifth-generation farmer and rancher, and her family has been in, has had some, she, they've been in beef, and they've also diversified recently, and she has a great story to tell about that. So, Kelly, why don't you talk about, you know, the, the land and your beef operation? I mean, you mentioned some really interesting things about where you're located and the soil and... Uh, you know some of the some of the other aspects of the ranch. You bet. Thank you, Sonia. It's something that we're very proud of, uh, and it came with quite a bit of challenge. Uh, as I mentioned in the first segment, I'm mid 40s, and I honestly never thought I would be back on the farm until I was probably mid to late 70s, and then you don't think you're going to have any energy to fix fence, and so I was shocked. Um, as an opportunity to come back to the farm about 13, 12 or 13 years ago now and just jumped at it. And um, I, I don't live in a conventional home. Uh, my grandfather, uh, the, the new, I'm doing air quotes here, the new dairy barn that was built in 1962, I believe, uh, that's, the, that's, the, that's my home. So the girl that lives in the barn, uh, which I guess is trendy now, but um, so I live on the main place right across from uh, from my father, and uh, he's been there all of his life, went to school there at Mustang, and then my sister has a conventional home, nice home, on the next section over, and the area is uh, fabulous. I, I have to pinch myself. Here I am standing in New Orleans, but um, I, I miss, the, I mean, I'm not at the farm right now. If I was, I'd be sitting on the back porch looking out, you know, over the pasture, we have a state, a four-lane state highway in our front yard, and I've heard people say, oh, my gosh, I cannot even imagine having that. My grandmother lived to see it come to pass. She had always wanted a highway in the front yard so that she could get down to Chickasha, where my sister and I were when we were kids. She said, I could, if the four-lane highway was right here and there was a bridge over this river, I could get down there faster and see you because she loved her grandkids. So... Whenever I hear people go, oh, gosh, I can't leave that highway. Well, let me tell you, my grandmother wanted this. You know, she fought for it whenever the state came in. It's been fabulous for us, besides the fact that we get cattle in and out. Um, and you can, you can turn a semi right off that highway, right into our front yard. Um, besides that, it's, it's handy. And we got to looking at that whenever I moved back home. Uh, the thought process was how do we – my dad said – I'll never forget it. Dad said, girls – you girls, which in, in our 40s were still his girls. Girls, this farm cannot support three families. And you all know what happens when you tell a little redheaded girl and a little blonde-headed girl, it can't happen. Oh, yeah, well, we're going to prove that it can. Mm -hmm. So while we haven't fully gotten there yet, it started a, a very strong desire for my sister and I to look at things differently. We, Every one of us loved being cattle producers. We run cows, and we run soccer cattle and that was all great but what else could we do and so the biggest thing that she and I decided to do was to start uh, a garden we were green thumbs anyway and of course the first thing you got to do is come up with a name right you know get by all means don't get a business plan together put a name together I'm joking um, but so we decided on the name Growing Pains as a play <laughs> off of our last name. And I remember, and then we sat about putting together a plan. But the biggest thing that was important to us was, can we, can we do it before we ever advertise anything? you got to know you can you know, get the product, right? And mm -hmm. then the other one was, okay, well, we start growing things. Even if, we, if something happens, if we drought out or a tornado comes through and takes out all of the crops and this little bitty garden that we have, all these big plans for, 
what's our number one goal? And our goal was to educate. We're four miles south of Mustang, and we're about 25 minutes from downtown Oklahoma City, just to kind of give you a, a as the crow flies, kind of an idea. So um, we, of course, Dad thought growing pains, he, he laughed at us, but then I heard him telling people, isn't that cute? Look what they did. So I knew we had his blessing. But um, the first year, we just wanted to grow pumpkins. She was getting married and having a fall wedding, so we figured out we can grow pumpkins. And then it was, well, let's try some traditional crops, tomatoes, peppers, et cetera, onions. So that went well, and we hadn't opened up to the public at this point. We were kind of doing some roadside sales. My niece, her daughter, uh, would set up at the end of my driveway, right there off the four-lane highway, and sell out within an hour. Now, if my sister or I sat out there, <laughs> we'd sit there all day. But you put a little a cute little blonde-haired girl out there, she can sell sell some okra. So then it got into, well, let's try some strawberries in a hoop house. At this point, I was working a lot. We were going through um, our first drought, which I guess now we're in our third. Um, so this would have been about 10 or 11 years, 12 years ago. So, but as time went on, I was working more. I was working at other sales, uh, livestock auctions and sale barns. So I was her cheerleader. And to look back then, and then look at what we have today, uh, she was the she was the backbone behind it. You know, out there by herself, uh, she'd bring in some school kids every now and again to help. Uh, it was all hands on deck when we planted strawberries. We're not planting ten or a dozen strawberry crowns. We would do three and four thousand in these um, greenhouses but you look at from 12 years ago to today there's three greenhouses there was a little dairy barn that was over there that we have remodeled and it is now a farm uh, like a farm store in season farm store we partner with a pork producer a poultry producer uh, a lady that has a jam and jelly line another lady that has a cucumber and you know just pickle uh, like a pickle line um, we've done farm. We do two farm festivals a year. We are um, a major place for photography. We do a sunflower garden um, where you can actually have four photographers working at one time, one on each side with their clients. We bought an old um, pickup that uh, families use for photography sessions, and it's just grown and grown. Uh, one of the things though that was really important about it is that we weren't afraid to fail. Uh, we've planted stuff that we didn't even like just to see, well, if we don't like it, maybe somebody else does. If you find the person that likes Swiss chard, send them my way because I've yet to meet anyone that does. <laughs> but it's been fun. And Dad, uh, the first festival that we had one year, a lot of the stuff that we tried festival-type-wise was done during the pandemic. We looked at the trends. Oh, people want to be outside. They're more comfortable if they're outside. There was a push for local again because they couldn't get product in the store. And so um, my sister's risk propensity is a lot, lot smaller than mine, so that's why I say I'm the cheerleader. I pushed her. And we did a harvest carnival, a festival, um, and we invited Maiden Oklahoma merchants to come and set up a booth. You know, they hadn't been able to work trade shows or, or be a vendor at any other event. Um, there was plenty of space. Um, we had 800 people through the gate that day. And it was a blessing to be able to reach so many people um, that, one, they wanted to be outside. They felt comfortable. Um, some of them, you know, were already buying produce off the farm from us um, as that, you know, came to maturity. Um, but the Made in Oklahoma vendors that hadn't been able to get out and sell anything in nine months at that point were just very grateful. Uh, it was just that things felt normal that day. Um, but that turned into, well, let's do a Mother's Day festival. And so we partnered with a winery that's down the road about four or five miles. They came back for that, um, started getting some food trucks in, and it's just grown. She was able to stay home and raise her daughter, who's now uh, 21, uh, and she wants to continue it on. And she's, our, she's already starting. Um, she bought her own greenhouse and is doing succulents and cut flowers. So it was an awesome, fun a way to add value uh, to our operation. Uh, we also did for a while, and we're kind of getting back into it. Of course, it's a lot more trendy now, um, a branded beef line uh, with the farm. Uh, we had done it before. Before we did it before, it was cool. <laughs> but it was more like selling a quarter or a half. Um, 
you know, to folks. So we're we're looking more at the branded beef line, and um, let's see, this summer we will host our first um, set of students. We have a cabin on the place as well, and um, so that's all ready to go. We're going to um, have host two students at a time, and we're going to partner with some. We will be partnering with some other um, agritourism. Uh, venues so that they can go and experience all the different types of things that are becoming really popular around uh, the state of Oklahoma. So we're very excited about that. Well, and so that's been a, a 10-year journey. Did you say that was about 10 years ago you started all of so Yes, uh, yeah, about 12. Wow. But to, I, I think we've only been certified agritourism for, I want to say we're only on year seven or eight with that. That took some that was a challenge. We didn't know if we were ready for that, and we didn't really know what it looked like. So there's our farm is very unique in that the bottom part is uh, is river bottom. The South Canadian River is our south boundary, and that's where the cattle and um, we used to farm, but we we quit. We put everything. Uh, it's either all native pasture or just improved at this point. We don't plant alfalfa or or wheat anymore. Um, we've transferred things back to, to a pasture-type setting. But where the garden is on the next section line is up. Uh, it's, a, it's hilly, and so it's, a, it's not as sandy of a soil. It's more of a sandy loam. Um, but we have a very large pond that, when it's full, is almost 12 acres. There was an old sand plant there. That cabin was part of the sand plant. They had, it was the scale house. So... There's some opportunity there that I'm not – I think we wanted to ease into it. Oklahoma was great about uh, – with Oklahoma Farm Bureau and the Cattlemen's Association uh, fighting for some agritourism laws and, ob and obviously trespass laws. So mm -hmm. we wanted to make sure that we had everything in place um, for that, you know, for protection, because you're essentially starting another business. Um, so I think the opportunities – are there for other things in the future. It's just how I'm bad to just dive right off instead of getting my toe wet. <laughs> so, so the Oklahoma agritourism laws, they, they provide a lot of, well, as far as some protection, make you less liable for any issues that might come up with, with guests or, or what exactly did that entail? Yes, it's, uh, they actually, of course, they come and look at your facility. I mean, you obviously don't want a big, you know, like you're not, probably shouldn't be laying water line in a big trench, you know, when you're having a festival by any means. But uh, so a lot of it's just common sense approach to what, and you want to put your best foot forward when you're opening up your uh, venue or uh, location to the public. But uh, they have, they provide signs. Um, it's, there's actually a state law. Uh, so that's nice to be able to post those. It obviously doesn't, you know, remove all all liability. Um, but in traveling with other states, uh, I've been in Arkansas. Uh, I noticed I've seen signs similar to that. So there's a number of states that offer that. And I do recommend, I'm speaking on a panel here in a few months, um, about <clears throat> diversifying your operation. You know, if you feel like you've got something to offer, do ease into it. Um, but there are so many resources and so many people that are willing to help with it. And that goes back to kind of like we talked about in the first segment, too, Sonia, of this is your story to tell. It's the story of the land. I'm very grateful to be fifth generation, but I met a young lady uh, during Cattlemen's Congress. She's from Oregon, and she's uh, third generation uh, from Oregon, and they live in a more rural Park, but she's first-generation cattle producer, mm -hmm. and her story was very unique. Yeah, she about how she went about things. She loves the place that they're on, but her family was always busy. Her dad's a vet. They didn't. They had critters around, but to be a full-fledged cattleman and a veterinarian, that just was not on his radar screen. So she took the ball and ran with it. And it's fascinating to meet people that are getting into this. Uh, with help of, uh, of of realtors, you know, oh, I want to buy some land, whether it's for hunting or um, they want a small acreage, they want to they want to plant a garden, but maybe agritourism is on their radar screen, 
And so I think it's I think it's just an awesome opportunity to get people. Let's get outdoors a little bit more. Let's Great. go and enjoy this. this Great place to break. Have. Great place to break, guys. Our guest today is Kelly Payne. We'd like to thank our sponsors, LandHub.com, a place to be in Acrevalia. Know your neighbor's land so forward. Go to acrevalia.com. It's free. All right. Welcome back, everybody. It's Sonia, and we're here with Kelly Payne. She's coming to us from New Orleans in the NCBA show, and she's going to continue to talk a little bit about the diversification her family's farm and ranch experience when they moved into agritourism. And one thing that is really obvious to me, Kelly, is sure, it's been 12 years and you guys have built built it phase by phase, but, you know, you don't have 800 people showing up at your ranch just by accident. Obviously, there was some great marketing going on from the start. Why don't you talk a little bit about that and how you were able to, you know, invite and and just welcome so many people to your ranch. You bet, Sonia, and thank you for that. You know, we did have, a, we had the pandemic on our side. I think it's easy to find all the negatives and something like that. And it was, it was a big thing for me even at that time. Um, was running, you know, running the stockyards, and of course we had the farm, uh, ranch going. Um, how do you stay positive? And so I think that was on our side. But even before that, like, I'll think back to, you know, how do you start with agritourism? How do you build that base? Because people aren't just driving down the road and say, oh, hey, I'm going to stop in here and grab a pumpkin or I'm going to stop in here and grab a strawberry or whatever the case may be, because you can go to the store and get a pumpkin and a strawberry on the same day. It doesn't yeah. have to be a seasonal uh, thing where you're driving out 16 miles out of your way to go and buy this one item or a, hand, a couple of pints. So when the when we first started with growing pains, um, I re- I'll never forget. It was the year we put strawberries in, and my sister was extremely meticulous. And we had the first year. I don't think we put in thousands. I believe it was about four to five hundred plants, which was still quite a bit. And we had gotten very eager and put them in in October, and October, November, right around in there. And we were still new with the greenhouse, didn't really know what we were doing. Uh, but we're going to wing it because that's what we do. And uh, she, re- she received a visit. She was um, utilizing any resource we could get our hands on. You know, just if someone would come out uh, that had technical advice. Absolutely. You know, bring them down. We want to learn from them. And she had, I'll never forget, she called me and she was in tears. And of course, if younger, if baby sister's crying, something's wrong, you know, big sister's going to go to pulling her dukes out. And she said, so-and-so just left and uh, I have to, the strawberries were in bloom at that time. So this would have been February or so. And she said, so-and-so just left, and I have to pull all of the flowers off of my strawberry plants. And I said, why? And some of them, the fruit was already setting. And she said, they're not, they're not going to be right in season. And I said, in season? We're in a greenhouse. There should, the season should be, of course, this is me and my little country thought process. The season should be whenever they're ready to eat. And... Yeah. She's devastated, and I said, hey, I'll be there soon enough, and I said, so when I got there, she was calmed down, and I said, let them, let them grow. She said, well, what do I do? What if I don't have anywhere to sell them? And I said, you'll have, the, you'll have somewhere to sell Now, think back. This is, you know, <laughs> 10 years ago. She said, I said, someone will buy them. Just because someone has told you that it's not in the typical season does not mean that it's wrong. <laughs> you mm-hmm. just find a different outlet. So we got to thinking about it, and I told her, I said, I called her one day, and I said, do you remember all of those little pots, terracotta pots that were left over from the wedding that we did a few years ago for another friend? And she said, I do. I said, does your daughter still have all of her paint? Yes. We had just redone the little dairy barn that had heat in it. So we decide we're going to offer, because she was really good about staying on social media, about you know, it, it, the trials and the tribulations and the good news, too. Mm-hmm. I said, put a deal up. These strawberries should be ready right around spring break. Put a deal up saying you'll take the first 20 kids at $10 or 15 I don't remember what it was at the time. 
um, for you'll take the first 20 students or 20 children to come out and paint a pot, and they'll be they'll have the first opportunity to to pick strawberries. She sold out in eight minutes. <laughs> oh, nice. But I needed her to see. I didn't know what it would do. I just was giving her something to do. <laughs> but I say that we joke about it now. But that we had to find a test. How how willing are people to come down here? And mm-hmm. so as time went on, and then with the pandemic, you know, her phone really got crazy because she just kept growing trust over and over and over throughout the years. And especially when we opened up for you pick, you know, these are the set hours, you know, eight to noon. Uh, if you call after this, you know, if you're coming out after this time, you better call. So it's running a business. Uh, mm-hmm. But with the festival, that timing could not have been better because folks did want to get out. Um, you had some people that were great about being out, some that weren't, and but there was enough space where it was fine. Um, but the the regulars that we had told their friends, hey, you've got to come down here and see this place. I, I go and get my strawberries or my tomatoes or my whatever there. So the expectation was already that we were going to do everything we could to take care of them, but it was also a chance for them to, well, hey, Susie, this is what I've been telling you about. Come down. And those same people came back. So it just grew and grew. What also helped with that first festival is because we didn't know what we didn't know. So, and that's a lot of it, is the vendors didn't know. No one knew because we weren't, no one was open. So to be able to say, we don't even know if anybody's going to show up. Mm-hmm. So, but they promoted it on social, their social media. We cross-promoted and now we have a, a waiting list of folks that want to be vendors at these events. So it's mm-hmm. it's fabulous. Now, unfortunately, Mother Nature reared her head. I don't. I guess I need to start talking nicer about her or something. I don't know. But we actually canceled our harvest festival due to the drought. And what the drought didn't take, um, the grasshoppers ate. I mean, down to nothing. So this was a very tough 2022. That fall was very difficult. We are we will not have our Mother's Day festival this year. We've already decided not to do that either. Think the conditions are just not getting any better um, with moisture and temperature. I mentioned I'm in you know been in New Orleans and Oklahoma's been 20 degrees uh, with this ice storm. So. It's a very challenging thing. These festivals have been great not only for us, but we like seeing the families have a very big smile on their face and helping these other vendors out. And that's that has that's a big concern mm-hmm. uh, for us. But we but we want to be honest about it. And that's a big that was a big conversation my sister and I had. What do you say when vendors start calling to get them on the calendar? I said, you just be honest with them. Hey, you know you. You sell X product, Y product, Z product. We are, you know, things that you, you're making. Um, we are selling things that have to be grown. And if the conditions are not so where we can do that, then it just doesn't happen. And I think that's a story. That's an incredible piece of the story that doesn't get told. We want to just, oh, well, you can just go to the store and get that agricultural product. You can't always do that. Mm-hmm. And that's tough. Yeah, I, I think that's true with, um, you know, with, with all of our products. I think that we don't have an understanding, for instance, like the, the average person who buys hamburger and steaks doesn't, doesn't really understand the kind of situation we have in our feedlots and in our pack, with our packers and, and how many ranchers are, are you know, are getting rid of cattle and, you know, I, because everything looks the same in the store. And and that's what I like about what you've done is, and being transparent about it is maybe the more people come and visit and learn, the more they understand the domino effect. Agreed. And, and I, so I think it's not to mention the fact that it's your creativity and innovation with you and your sister and your family have, have obviously strengthened, you know, your ranch ownership overall as well. Am I, uh, do you feel like that has been important to allow you to diversify and maybe make decisions that you wouldn't have before you diversified? 
I do, Sonia. I think that's an excellent point. Something that's really important to to not only my sister and I, but my my dad as as well, is don't don't forget where he came from. And there are times uh, you know driving across uh, the farm. You know, I can cut through the farm to go to my sister's place. And, and I think what I think about my ancestors, you know, my, my grandmother, um, I was very, very fortunate, uh, to know her very well. Uh, she's been gone 18, boy, she's been gone a while. Um, I treasured every conversation I had with her. She and granddad bought that bottom land, uh, shortly after they were married in the forties and, uh, her, her husband, my grandfather, he passed away when I was eight. But my dad and my sister and I always think about, you know, we know how hard they worked. Um, obviously, dad grew up there uh, with them. But um, the ancestors that made that trek from Kentucky here, what was that like? What was on their minds? And then for them to throw their stake down in that community that's now a bedroom community, it doesn't even have a downtown. It's the bedroom community of Oklahoma City a lot of hustle and bustle and a four-lane highway in the front yard, as I mentioned before. Mm-hmm. You know, what would they think about this now? I know what my grandparents would think, but what would great, great, great think now? Um, and so it's important to think about, to keep that going. One of the things that was interesting in reading about my family's history and the city of Mustang, Mustang is a very, it was very fertile, and there were a lot of orchards and gardens and it was a big um, truck farm type area. And a lot of those folks would drive into Oklahoma City to the big old farmer's market that's still standing down in the same area as the stockyards and sell their produce. Mustang had a cannery, a peach cannery. So you think about, wow, and that, that came into play when my sister and I talked about what can we do? What can we do to add value down here? Well, gosh, if this was an area known for growing fruits and vegetables, let's just bring that back. Now, I don't know that we'll ever start some big major trend there, but it made sense. So in thinking about going back, don't you know, we're not reinventing the wheel, but sometimes maybe our ancestors were right. This, hey, this is a very simple thing, which they were growing them for a totally different reason. Mm-hmm. We're growing them for themselves. I'm sure they bartered and sold some, but to think about what, what is next, is it do we add – so my sister's done some seed swaps in partnership with some other growers around the state. They're looking at, you know, our canning classes. Is that something fun that we can start adding? People are getting back to a simpler, basic, maybe even a slower way of living. I think we found out during the pandemic that what we were doing, well, it wasn't wrong. Is it, what, how, is it fulfilling? Mm-hmm. So I think there's a lot of opportunity that can come from that. Yeah, I, I, I think that's a, a fantastic, um, you know, perspective that you've you've been able to learn because of the pandemic and because of your family's history, and and yeah, and I and I think we can say it. I, I mean, I think it's similar with grasslands. I mean, I think that you know the overgrazing and monocultures i i just think that you know if we go back to the basics maybe and and get some of our grasslands and grazing lands back maybe that would like what you've done with a portion of your ranch yeah obviously that was a difficult decision to not plant crops like you had been doing for years and years but but obviously you saw some value and maybe it's because of your branded beef line where you can actually say it's grass Bed and grass finished. And well, I, I think know. you're, I think you're right on target with that too, Sonia. That that was, I'm trying to remember how many years ago that we went to, you know, an improved pasture versus, you know, plowing the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, but we we find our, and that was, when you look back, you think, gosh, we were really anticipating what we were doing was anticipating the drought of 2010 and 11 and the mm-hmm. drought in 12, 13, right in there, and then here we are again. We know, we know, I mean, that it doesn't matter if corn is at an all-time high 
or insert commodity here. If we don't take care of that sandy uh, river bottom soil and let it you know, put some other practices in place, it can't take care of us. Mm-hmm. And so that was that was the thought process then. Not that we had a crystal ball, but we just people we get in the habit of well, this is what granddad did, or this is what great granddad did. Well, that doesn't always. They also were doing some things differently that were simpler that we should really think about adopting, <laughs> too. So and we're at a point, I'll be honest with you, on this call, um, I, I know that it's rude. They say, they say it's rude for people to go, well, how many cows do you have? I've never felt that was the case. But um, there was a time uh, we could run about 250, 275 cows and their calves on that place. We we sold way, way down back prior to this last, the last drought, the 2010, 2011 drought. We never built back up. The most we've ran since then has been about a hundred. Right now, I will tell you, I have, we have three bulls, one cow and a calf and a donkey standing there, um, along with a pen of steers and heifers that will go into the branded beef line. And that's, that's it. We've made the decision to let that land lie fallow. Uh, let it start healing. Uh, we ran stalker calves on there last year, rotated uh, more than we've ever rotated before. Water was obviously an issue, but we want, we really, this, this is the the year of the land. Um, so we, we're wanting to pay a, pay a lot closer attention, uh, maybe identify some areas where we can do some things different because we certainly don't want to go through this again. Yeah, yeah, I understand. Um, yeah, it, it sounds like you, you have been very conservation-minded and, and been very good stewards, and that's, that's fantastic. We can all learn more from you on, on that regard. I'm still learning <laughs> a lot. <laughs> well, you know, and I think when we were talking last week, I, I had told you about this movie that I had watched that was so powerful um, to me, and it just reiterated or reinforced just how emotional we are about land and that was uh, that movie called sweet land i don't know if you had a chance to look at it but it's uh, i had actually put a, a link to it's free on prime amazon prime right now with and it, it just was it was so powerful as far as um you know just telling that story of how hard it is you know, to make that decision to sell the land when it's been in the family four or five generations. And it kind of, um, you know, it, it should be a real logic. There's just a lot of emotion involved, and, and the movie kind of helps me understand a little bit more about about that, too. So, so. I, I didn't get a chance to watch that yet. It's certainly on my list. The, <laughs> but that's an interesting um, assessment, too. I know you and I had kind of went back, uh, thought back and forth about that through email that there is a strong strong pull uh, to the land and and I have seen people get in situations um, unfortunately where there's no one left to take it on or they've over leveraged um, whatever the case may be I mean there's a number of reasons why why folks would have to sell yeah, uh, a parcel of land, even if it's just because it's the right thing to do. You know, mm-hmm. hey, I can sell this place and I can go buy a bigger place. I think there's still such a strong tie that it's, it's just difficult. And my heart breaks for that. I've seen large tracts of land get broken up uh, around around us. Beautiful alfalfa uh, pastures I had ever seen or cropland. Uh, right across the river from us, it's just—I don't know how many houses are over there, thousands yeah. of beautiful yeah. little homes. But my lands, I sure like yeah. those alfalfa fields. <laughs> no, I under—I understand. Well, Lou and Teresa, do you have any other questions for Kelly? I have one. So you're talking about, you know, what you've been doing to, to be read to conserve the land and and to take care of it. So is is everyone having to do this, and is that going to affect the price of food? Is it going to continue to go up? Because it's high now. As far as the cost of... 
Well, you were talking oh, yeah. about, you know, rotating the cows and, and all the stuff that you're having to do. It, is that affecting the, and you said, you know, you, you didn't, I mean, did I misunderstood that you didn't have as many cows this year because of the conditions of the land? Okay, I, I got you. I just stepped over into the area where I didn't hear the question clearly enough. Yeah. The drought has, has been absolutely devastating. And I just read an article. Um, there's a couple of things that are in play. When the drought hit, it hit early. And it, st- it got hot and it stayed hot and it stayed dry uh, here in um, Oklahoma and Texas and some other neighboring states. Part of the situation, though, is the northwest and west and some parts of the north had already been in drought as well. So a lot of cattle were already moving from that portion of the United States, and then we got hit with it really hard uh, here in the Southern Plains, even up in the parts of uh, Kansas and Nebraska. So if you look at that, there's a very large swath of the United States that's typically cattle-producing country just by nature of the grassland that is there. The cows uh, went to harvest faster. Um, Some states were able to buy cows. Typically, we'll have in, like, the last drought that we had in 10 and 11 and 12 and 13, we sold a lot of cows to Nebraska, and a lot of cows went east, like Kentucky. Well, they couldn't go north, and there's only so many cows that, that the folks out east want, um, or they're, they're overstocked. So a lot of cows went to, were harvested early. Another thing that happened with that is the heifer calves. So you've got heifer and steer calves that would typically go into a feed yard, uh, mainly, and then some of the heifer calves would be kept back as replacements. The feed supplies got so tight and the drought got worse and worse that they couldn't keep those heifers back as replacements to turn into cows. So you have a huge number, a large number, alarming number of females that went to be harvested, that went into the food chain. Right. Instead of being kept back right. to make more babies. <laughs> and it's the elephant in the room. I don't want to be a bearer of bad news and go sound the alarms and everybody needs to buy a cow and put it in their backyard by any means. But <laughs> the increase in um, commodities, the increased price, the increase in fuel, all of these things have kind of led up to quite a little perfect storm. Now, what that means for the cattle producer that can hang on is his cattle are going to be worth more. But what they're worth in the market, in the live auction, is different than what you're going to pay in the store. Right. So there's a challenge there of how does this, I, I wish I had a crystal ball, because I wish I had a lot of cattle, because I think they're going to be worth a lot of money. But I don't. Um, but the challenge is, is how do you, what does this look like in two years? So that's been part of the conversations we're having is, Um, can you move them somewhere? I have one friend of mine, he's got cattle scattered out. Um, He's got some leases. They're smaller leases. So he took a cow herd that was, say, 500 head. He's down to 300. But he didn't have any grass left in Oklahoma. But he found somebody in Texas that had 30 acres every year, or someone that had 50. And so he's just kind of stashed them around Mm -hmm. like they're gold, which they are. Yeah. Um, until we can get back to a more of a normal uh, weather pattern here and get some grass growing in in the states. Winter wheat um, is, is always a big crop in Oklahoma and Texas. And it's what they're able, if they got a crop put in at all, uh, the stocking rate on that is much lower than what it has been on a, on a normal year. I, I feel weird using the word normal because I don't know that anything's normal anymore. Um, but what we've what we've done in the past, so there's some challenges there. Uh, all proteins across the board, it looks like um, whether it's pork or beef or chicken or probably and eggs, uh, obviously are going to be higher for quite some time. It's just an interesting dynamic, I think, in our food supply anymore or in agriculture, and I think it goes back to education. So the more we know, whether we're as consumers or producers, and it's important for the producer to know what the consumer wants. If not, we're just creating something that nobody needs. Um, But I think as we move forward, those conversations are even more and more important because of the gap between who's 
growing the food and who's eating the food. There's the next question. How much is a dozen eggs in Oklahoma? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I, you know, I shouldn't even say this. We have our own hens. (laughs) (laughs) So you don't even know. (laughs) I've seen, okay, I have uh, seen some friends of mine post on social media six dollars and yeah, seven dollars and that's at a main at a major grocer not yeah that's what they are here that's what they are east. in east yeah out east yeah yeah they're high here in texas too it's like the <laughs> goose that laid the golden egg <laughs> <laughs> yeah well well uh now lou's family's been in the poultry business for a long time now lou do you have anything to say about the about the cost of eggs and poultry right now. Well, actually, we haven't, but, uh, but uh, well, <clears throat> actually, uh, we have. <clears throat> well, actually, we haven't. <laughs> we, we, were, we were a dairy farm uh, way back, but uh, my granddaughters oh, now have uh, layers. they got 12 chicken houses. So those, those are for reproducing chickens, not for selling. So I'm not up to speed on that too much. But I'm, I'm going to have to end our show today. Uh, and you guys have been really great, and I know our guests will, our uh, audience will enjoy, Kelly, your presentation and learning about uh, family farming and the trials and tribulations. I know I've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed it. Have I have too. So, uh, Kelly, how do they get in touch with you? Well, I appreciate it. Um, you can find me on Facebook, and it's Kelly, K-E-L-L-I, Payne, P-A-Y-N-E. You'll know you're at the right. One, because the background says, so God made a farmer. So there's a little tip for you there. Uh, my email address is the letter K, Payne, P-A-Y-N-E, beef, like steak. No surprise to any of you. Kpainbeef at gmail.com. And I love talking with folks. If I can help in any way or get you in touch with someone else uh, that that I know um, can help you, uh, my phone number, I certainly don't mind giving that out, Lou, 405 nine nine six zero four three five if you call um call me after hearing me on this show please reference um all about land podcast so i'll i'll know how to track everybody down thank you all very very much for this incredible opportunity oh you're welcome sonia how to get in touch with you now, yeah thanks lou um through georench.com my contact information is there and as you know georench is a uh, Land professionals dedicated to connecting landowners and leasing ranchers. And we're happy to help as well. And Kelly, you've been just a great guest. And uh, it's been so so much fun to talk to you again. Thank you all very, very much. I appreciate it. We'll talk soon. Absolutely. Thank you for joining us today. Let us know how you like the show. All questions and comments are welcome. This show is for the public and most importantly for real estate agents who do not have a source of land education. All of our shows will be found on our master website, www.letstalkland.net. That's .net. We'll also be found on Spotify and Podbean. Teresa, how do they get in touch with you? They can call me at 336-209-2937 or email me at Teresa, T-E-R-E-S-A, dot mylandpro at gmail.com. My email is lou, L-O-U, at mylandpro.com. My cell number is 336-669-1405. Our company website is www.mylandpro.com for all your real estate needs. Hey, we'd like to thank our sponsors, landhub.com. Are you looking to buy or sell land? Landhub.com previews thousands of properties nationwide. That's landhub.com. And our other sponsor is AcreValue. Acre Value is the only website I need to research land. If you want to find out what your neighbor sold his land for last year, the best place to go is acrevalue.com. Ronnie, how do you get in touch with us here? Well, Lou, they can go to our website. Go to wkte1090.com, and also they can download the simple radio app and hear all of our great music that we have and programs on here. Teresa, what do we play? Happy music. That's right. Beach and oldies. Shout out. Beach and oldies. Shada loves happy music. Oh, yes, yes. She gets excited. She does. When she hears it. So, um. Great music. So, uh, so, how else do they find us? Simple radio app? 
Yes, Zeppel Radio app. <laughs> ah, yeah, I didn't know what you was trying to say there. Oh, yeah, Zeppel Radio app. I was blowing in anywhere the air. in the world. Anywhere. anywhere. Universe? Yes, yes. Okay. And we won some nice awards. Yeah, eight years in a row being the top beach and oldies radio station on the East Coast. It, that's from like uh, Maine, Canada, up there all the way to Key West? Yep. But mm-hmm. not to Oklahoma, right? No, not yet. Unless you do. The Simple Radio app. Bingo. That's it. All right. And you won a nice award. Yeah, the Reader's Choice Announcer of the Year Award. Well, I wonder why. Yes. Well, congratulations. Thank hey, you. Hey, we'll see you next week, guys.